Welcome to Piedmont Arts, made possible by Quo Vadis and Ortho Carolina. I'm Rachel Stewart. The Winston-Salem Symphony has a new concert called Center Stage that's available on demand until early April, and it features music by Lucas Foss, Edward Elgar, and George Gershwin. Artistic Director Timothy Redmond joins me uh, today to talk about it and to also talk about how the Winston-Salem Symphony has fared this past year. So, Tim, thanks for coming back to Piedmont Arts. Thank you for having me. Let's just start with how has the year been? You've made it this far. Yeah, we have. I mean, different, shall we say, and busy, unexpectedly busy. I mean, gratifyingly so. A year ago, everything closed. And right from the beginning, we knew that we were going to be creating whatever it was that we could. And I guess it just took us a while to find out what that was. We were testing all the boundaries. We were working out what was possible, what the risks were, how to make things as safe as possible for our players. We didn't know, of course, at the beginning, would we be able to have an audience? If so, how many? Would we be live streaming everything? Would we be recording? And the truth is, we've changed course as we've progressed, and rightly so, because it's been the most extraordinary learning experience. And whilst it's not the same as giving regular concerts. And whilst we are not able to give our musicians the amount of work that they would normally have with the symphony, it has to be said, we've been more creative perhaps than we could ever have dreamed. And the collaborations that we've made, the recordings, the reach, the number of people that we've reached has been so much more than we could ever have imagined. Yeah, that's been a silver lining, I think, for a lot of, a lot of groups. And, you know, I was just thinking when I read the introduction, it says Winston-Salem has a new concert called Center Stage. I would never before COVID have introduced anything like that because you think of a concert as a point in time. But this is this is out there available for anybody to listen to until you take it down. Right. Exactly. And I mean, look, you put your finger on something pretty fundamental here about the arts. I mean, the whole point of live performance is that it can only ever happen once in all of history. You know, it is a unique experience that binds together the musicians on stage, the audience in the hall, the music that has been composed. All of those things come together for a once in a lifetime experience. The moment you record it, it's there for posterity and you listen in a different way. And dare I say it, you perform in a different way. I mean, if you're in a play, you'll be doing perhaps eight shows a week. You've got to find a way of making those words fresh every single time. Now, as classical musicians, we don't perform as often as that, but we come to the performances with the same approach of how do we take risks? How do we tell our musical story? How do we seize the moment? When you know you're being recorded, there's a great satisfaction in knowing that this is going to live longer than that moment, but there's also a great responsibility for making it as, as, as great as it can be in a different way. So yes, you say we've got a new concert and it's available for the next however long, but that however long is key because we have chosen not to put up all of these recordings forever. There is a limited shelf life. And most people, I, from anecdotally, have enjoyed listening and watching our performances once, or maybe a couple of times, 
but they're not it's, it's not like a cd on the shelf gosh i'm sounding old now apparently people have <laughs> cds on shelves it's not like an mp3 player on your hard drive anyway you know what i mean um we are still we are still promoting these events in the spirit of a concert and i think that's been important for us because it's it's reimagining the situation we're in and making the most of it um, but not entirely going away from our home territory is there um is there a chance that you will bring them back maybe next year and create a library that people can visit well, no, it's interesting you say that because one of the things that we've realised through the course of this year is we now have, you know, hours and hours and hours of extraordinary high quality, not just audio recording, which we've always done. And it's worth saying that, you know, many, if not most of our classics concerts get broadcast on the radio, you know, so it's not entirely new. But we've got the video as well. And so, yes, I think some of this will live on. And in fact, we've started programming with that in mind to think, well, hang on, there is no recording of this widely available. Potentially, we could have a place on the Internet. And, you know, look, we, we live in a particular world in the classical uh, music scene. It's not that everybody's going to be searching for all of this, but... Actually, it's an exciting prospect that some of the things that we've recorded this year might well live on. So how does what you're doing this year influence what you'll do next year when presumably they're going to be able to put more people in seats at the Stevens Center and, and other venues? Look, I'd say every arts organization in the world is asking this question at the moment. You know, does easy exposure online in any way devalue what happens live in the concert hall or does it enhance it do you risk reducing the size of your audience because anyone can see the show online or does it actually bring more people in nobody quite has these answers and we continue to ask the questions i mean everybody does i think Undeniably, there is a hunger for live performance, and we've heard it time and time again from our patrons. Uh, when can we come back to the concert hall? Especially as more and more people get vaccinated or, or feel safer and so on, there's a real wish to get back to how things were. But what do we take from this? Well, I think the spirit of creativity is not going to be diminished, that's for sure. And our ability this year to make collaborations, particularly obviously with video and it's the and filmmakers, that's that's the obvious thing, but not just that. I think we'd like to take that forward. I think we also have to ask ourselves what that has grown out of this year will benefit us in the future. I mean, different streaming platforms, the possibility of I mean, look, the really, really big fish like the Berlin Philharmonic have been doing digital concert hall for many, many years where they will film several performances of a concert and put the best up. Not all of their concerts, but plenty of them. Now, that has generally existed only at the very highest level, but it's actually quite an exciting prospect for us in the Winston-Salem Symphony that we could continue to have a place 
on a streaming platform to reach a wider audience and to program thinking about what the appeal of particular music might be or how do we tell our story to a wider audience so I think there will be things that happen. I mean, look, classical music is quite famous for not exactly being on the front foot when it comes to technology, because what we do works so well in the way that it has done for hundreds of years. And that is people coming together to experience great music, either brand new or old favorites performed live in a, you know, a, in a natural acoustic space. But there's no reason why we can't mix things up. And it's something that we're talking about a great deal and asking these questions. But, you know, frankly, nothing that's happened this year in terms of how we've presented our performances has been entirely new. We've had the possibility and it has happened on occasion. It's just become more of the norm. So I guess what we have to just ask ourselves is how much of this will we continue and how much will be naturally jettisoned as we go back to what we've always done? It'll probably be a, a process, right? An evolution. I think so. I think so. And, you know, we, we'll be finding our feet in the fall as we get back to normal, taking it one step at a time. Let's talk about the Center Stage concert in particular that is on demand right now. You've got an interesting work by Lucas Foss. You've got the Elgar Cello Concerto, Gershwin's Cuban Overture, and you're featuring soloists who are actually members of the orchestra. I, I guess uh, this year hasn't been a good one for <laughs> bringing in guests. But uh, just tell us a little bit about the music. Uh, particularly, I think the Lucas Foss is something that people don't know as well. Absolutely. Well, the Lucas Foss Concerto was actually, we were, we were supposed to be playing it in May 20. And of course, that was one of the concerts that got cancelled at the initial months of the pandemic. And the Elgar was something that we would have been doing back in January, I think. And so we we really wanted the opportunity to, to feature both of these pieces, not least because they're performed by our fabulous principals, Kathy Levy on the flute and Brooks Whitehouse on the cello. But it also allowed us, I mean, look, this is one of the things that we've got, we've learned out of this year's programming. First of all, you can be fleet of foot, you can change your mind, you can move things around, but you can also put things together on a program in a way that perhaps you wouldn't Normally, I mean, I don't think one would normally try and promote a two concerto concert in normal times. I mean, it's, you know, it's a sort of an embarrassment of riches in, in many respects, <laughs> but actually it worked very well. And yes, the, the Lucas Foss is actually a piece that the orchestra played, I don't know, about 20 years ago. It's not brand new to the orchestra. It's a wonderful piece. I mean, it dates from 1986 in the kind of Lucas, uh, first of all, it's worth saying that Lucas Foss was one of the giants of American music. I mean, one of the most significant figures. He was Bernstein's favorite pianist for his big age of anxiety. He played Les Nos for Stravinsky in that famous recording where there's Samuel Barber and um, Lucas Foss and who else? I mean, they're all huge names playing the piano. So as a pianist, he was very, very well respected. He taught, he encouraged the next generation. He was a music director of several orchestras and he led the field in experimental music. And this combination of skills, of experiences, I guess, made him extraordinarily important as a, as a figure. And musically what happened is he started out in one style 
then got very experimental. And then for his final years of composition, a, a period that actually started with the Renaissance concerto, which we're playing, he casts his eye back, if you like, and on, on musical stars. It's a little neoclassical idiom, I suppose, a bit like Stravinsky. And in the, in the Renaissance concerto, he borrows, he borrows music from across the centuries and views them through a new lens. We hear 15th century Spanish music, we hear Monteverdi, we hear William Byrd, we hear snippets of very, very familiar styles of music, but redesigned, reimagined, there's a word that we've used a lot uh, this season. And it's in four movements and it features the flute and this extraordinary cadenza for flute and tambourine, perhaps the only one in all the repertoire, but it's absolutely charming and it has to be said you know whenever you put something new on the stands players generally kind of raise an eyebrow and go well what, what's this piece all about I have to say everyone just loved it they loved getting to know it they loved recording it they loved performing it and we're really happy with how it's ended up and you know Kathy Levy does the most wonderful job the, the piece ends very dramatically with the with the flautist walking off stage um it's just playing this repeated pattern just walking off into the wings and this is one of the fun things about doing things for video is you get to see that process close up now if you're watching that from the auditorium of course you could watch the um, the flautist go off into the wings but when you've got a camera on that person it's somehow much more personal it's one of the fun things that we've discovered is uh, is a really enjoyable twist on regular concert going and, and music making. So yeah, there's the Lucas Foss. And now the Elgar and the Gershwin both require orchestras larger than one that we're allowed to fit on stage. I mean, I'm sure everybody realizes that socially distanced musicians mean with six feet between everybody, you can only fit it on stage around a third of a usual size orchestra. And we've been experimenting this year with how to program around these restrictions, sometimes stretching the size of the stage, sometimes being imaginative about where we place people. Our last concert, for example, we put the brass in the auditorium so that we could actually <laughs> fit all the musicians in the same space. But for the Gershwin and the Elgar, what we've done is found orchestral reductions, rather ingenious reorchestrations uh, of these pieces designed for smaller ensembles. And they were both pre-existing. We didn't commission them, but they work wonderfully well in both cases. So the Gershwin, which famously has a large wind and brass and percussion section, is ingeniously shrunk to a manageable COVID-friendly ensemble. And the significance of that is it allows you to have a smaller string group. You see, the more wind and brass and percussion you have, the larger the complement of strings that is necessary to support that sound. And the Elgar, which is this gorgeous, elegiac, romantic orchestral accompaniment, has been cleverly reduced. So instead of two each of the wind players, you just have one. And such is the skill of the arranger that I have to say you'd be hard pressed most of the time to realize that anything was missing. And Brooks, our cellist for this particular project, instead of the usual position to the left of the conductor, just in front of the concert master, we actually put him in the center of the stage so that everybody on stage could hear him and he was more easily connected with everybody. And again, something a little bit different, something that we wouldn't 
ever normally be able to do, not least because the sound would end up being reduced for the audience. But for this, it worked beautifully. And I think if people choose to, to look at our concert, to watch it, they'll see what an extraordinary, almost in the round experience it is to have the cello soloist there. Did you have to do multiple takes of these works? If we were making a commercial recording of this, we would be aiming to, to do as many takes as was necessary to get the most perfect performance. So the, the, the standard procedure in a recording might be a playthrough of the entire work or movement and then to chop it up into chunks and then go back for eight bars here and four bars there just to make sure you've covered all... We didn't want to do this. We wanted this to be as honest and as near to a concert experience as possible, because frankly, if you go down the multi-edit route, first of all, it's very complicated and very time consuming, but it's also quite tiring and you end up performing in a slightly different way. And I've done a lot of this and it's satisfying in its own right. But for these concerts, even though they're not live, we wanted them to feel as if they were live. So. You asked, did we do multiple takes? We did more than one of a movement and then would choose which one was best. But what we didn't do is chop it all up. Now, this is not just actually for musical reasons. It allowed us to get different shots, for example. When we started off live streaming in the fall, we might have three cameras. And now we have seven or eight and we can change the position. So we'll do a take and then think, actually, do you know what? It might be nice to go from such and such an angle. And we're telling the story visually as well as musically. So very often the multiple takes, they allowed us to kind of settle in musically, but it, more to the point, it allowed us to make sure that by the final take, we had all the material we, we wanted. And it has to be said, you can't mix and match. You can't take the audio from one and the video from another. You only get one go at it. So it's as near the live experience as you might hope in, in, in such a situation. It's so interesting to me that um, <laughs> your organization, so many others have had to become videographers and learn how to deal with video as well as audio. We haven't had to do that at WDAV, fortunately. Lucky you. I know. Oh my, <laughs> yes. We've learned a huge amount about color balancing and color palettes of light and the frequencies of the light versus whatever sampling rate, this, that, and the Yes, it's a whole business. I mean, it is truly fascinating. And, you know, I think it's good for anyone, whatever they do, to, to step back and, and, and consider it from somebody else's point of view. And in many respects, this feels closer to a theatrical world that I'm very familiar with from conducting a lot of opera as compared to straight concert making. But I think Everybody has adapted extraordinarily well. And um, as we were saying earlier, I think we can we can take a lot from this. Well, it's all very interesting to hear. Um, and thank you so much for spending some time with us on Piedmont Arts today. You've got one more concert coming up, right? That will be available on demand? Absolutely. We've got two, actually. We've got one, the Bluegrass Mass with the chorus and Hank Patty and the Current. Um, so Bluegrass and String Quartet and Symphony Chorus. <laughs> and then we've got a concert that we're recording in May, which we are just putting the finishing touches to now. So look forward to sharing news about that very soon. And if people are interested in the concerts, uh, just go out to the Winston-Salem Symphony website. 
correct? Absolutely. I think there's a, a link there to buy tickets or whatever you all call it. All the a details, all the details will be there. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thanks so much to Timothy Redman, Artistic Director with the Winston-Salem Symphony, for spending some time with us on Piedmont Arts today. I'm Rachel Stewart, and Piedmont Arts is made possible by Quo Vadis and Ortho Carolina.